Hey again. Glad to be back in your ears and on your podcast feeds with episode 6. It should be said now more than ever that when thinking of when and how people choose to have children or not, access to affordable health care is at the top of the worries list. The current administration is doing everything that it can to make it so that for so many people it is impossible to terminate a pregnancy or to afford prenatal care. Queer parents' ability to adopt is tenuous at best, and now more than ever are the words of Megan Smith from the Repeal Hyde Art Project ringing true, that building queer family is an act of resistance. This episode is the second and final segment on reproductive loss, focusing on queer reproductive loss. The pit of my stomach falls out when I realize it won't be as easy as I thought to have kids. Growing up in a world that assumes that everyone is straight, and similarly wrongly, assumes everyone is able to get pregnant, The idea of not being able to choose to mix genetic sequences with someone that I love and create someone new to love is heartbreaking. I experience a piece of that heartbreak now every time I think about having kids with my partner. The women unable to have children in the way they might have dreamed are signposts that run a path through the whole Torah. Hannah, who cries out to God silently to conceive, is misunderstood by the world around her, and she is instead chastised. Hannah's experience of loss and how she mourns her inability to become pregnant has to be explained, taught, before she can receive comfort. In 1 Samuel, Hannah goes to the temple to pray for help. Her prayers are so fervent that her lips move without any words coming out, and Eli the high priest sees this weeping woman mouthing silently and accuses her of being drunk. How long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Sober up. Hannah corrects this high priest, this authority who cannot understand nor bear her grief. She says, I have only been speaking all this time out of my great anguish and distress. Hannah's grief is unimaginable to Eli, who scolds her for disrespecting the temple rites. Infertility, loss of an adoption, inability to conceive with a partner, these are stories that we have to seek out. What if Eli had seen Hannah's grief and sat next to her as she prayed? What if he had joined in? Reproductive loss is the loss of a wanted pregnancy, but it is also the loss of potential, the loss of pregnancies, failed adoptions, infertility. This episode of Kaddish offers a queered vision of reproductive loss that centers on the body but understands the myriad of ways we might have such an experience, moving from not just the sphere of the body but into the spirit. I first learned about this idea, this expansive and compassionate understanding of reproductive loss from my first guest, Naomi Liepart. Naomi is an educator, faith leader, and organizer based in Philadelphia. We'll also hear in this episode from Krista Craven, a professor in women's gender and sexuality studies in Ohio. Both weave the body and spirit into our imaginings of what reproductive loss is, something that does happen to queer bodies and in queer family. This episode is a prayer to find the vessels big enough for us to pour our loss into, finding vessels that can contain loss. This could be a story about not having to explain why we pray silently, instead inviting others to join in the prayer. I'm Ariana Katz, and this is Kaddish. Here's Naomi. My name is Naomi Christine Leapart, and I'm the Faith Work Director at the National LGBTQ Task Force. 
I'm also a born and bred Baptist, and I am currently making my denominational home in the United Church of Christ. So I've been thinking about this, and I, I would say that any loss we can attribute to the expectation of new life, the generation of new life, I would consider a reproductive loss. So both in the sort of politicized sense where we're thinking about um, a child that has been lost to a mother who is pregnant, um, we think about a child who's lost at any point in that child's life, um, but also there's loss involved in the expectation of new life that cannot be met for all of the reasons that that could be. Um, so I definitely ref- de- would define reproductive loss in the broad, broad way. Reproductive loss is losing a wanted pregnancy, is having a living child die to violence or illness, is infertility and the inability to get pregnant. Krista Craven is an associate professor of anthropology and chair of the Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at the College of Worcester. She wrote an essay in Queering Motherhood with Elizabeth Peel called Stories of Grief and Hope, Queer Experiences of Pregnancy Loss. But it was through her own experience of reproductive loss in 2009, a miscarriage in the second semester of her pregnancy, that she began to see the real dearth of resources available to support queer people in their loss and the differences in how this impacts queer people. Here's Krista's story. We looked for resources, and there was very little that looked like our family. Um, Most of what we found was, um, you know, heterosexual couples, um, you know, mostly, you know, white, Christian, um, you know, blonde-haired, blue-eyed. And and we really, you know, we really didn't find very much that addressed the experiences that a queer family um, might have. Krista and her partner didn't have other folks in their community that shared their family structure, but they still were met with a tremendous amount of support from people who saw that supporting LGBTQ families meant supporting LGBTQ families in loss, too. And so once we, you know, we had come through that experience, um, you know, one of, the, one of the things I was doing was, you know, was going online and searching out, you know, are there communities that are supporting each other, you know, what, what can I find? And there was very, very little um, on LGBTQ experiences with reproductive loss. But she did stumble on a survey by psychologist Elizabeth Peel, and after some convincing, the two began to work together to study how reproductive loss specifically affects queer families. Their first piece came out in 2014 in that anthology called Queering Motherhood. The piece is called Stories of Grief and Hope, Queer Experiences of Pregnancy Loss not only from my own experience, but I really want to make these experiences more um, more public because I can't tell you, I mean, I've talked with over 50 people and I can't tell you how many people have said to me, wow, I thought I was the only one until I saw you were doing this research. Um, yet over 100 people have contacted me, you know, so it's it, this is a relatively um, common experience, yet it's one that we never talk about. 
I'm creating the work that I wish that I could have access to in what I've sent out, um, asking people to um, to contact me if they want to be a part of the study. Um, I have identified myself as um, you know a queer parent who has experienced loss as well as a researcher who's interested in this topic. And I've had numerous people say to me, I never would have gotten in touch with you if I didn't, you know, that you, that you hadn't had that experience um, because I've talked to too many people who've been dismissive of my own. But being able to to empathize as someone who has gone through something similar, I think has been a powerful part of the research. Craven and Peel outlined several particular ways in which reproductive loss is different for queer people. Namely, they focus on the financial burden of affording insemination, surrogacy, or adoption, the invisibility of the non-caring partner, and fear of shaming. For me, the shift in imagining what building my family will look like has been a kind of loss too. So many of the people that I've spoken with, you know, said something to the effect of that their big fear was that, you know, people were going to say to them, well, well, you're, you know, you're queer anyway, you shouldn't be having children. So this is why this is happening. So much of the literature, um, you know, written for LGBTQ, um, you know, intended parents, as well as the academic literature on um, those communities, talks about reproduction as if it is only wealthy couples that engage in this. And if my research has shown me anything, that is absolutely not true. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, I've talked to many people who, especially after a loss, um, you know, feeling the intense. Um, you know, feeling feeling a real intensity towards wanting to continue toward their goal of making family. Um, you know, have taken second mortgages on their house. They've maxed out their credit cards. Um, you know, they they've had a very significant impact. I talked to one couple where you know when well, I was talking to them t- together, I was sitting in their living room, and when one of them you know got up to go in the other room, um, the other one, the the one who was um, the carrying parent, she she said to me, you know, I'm really I'm afraid that. I'm going to let Shamika down um, that, that, you know, because of my anxiety about loss and because of having already experienced a loss that I'm going to miscarry again because I'm so afraid of how much this is costing us and how much this is impacting our family. And, and so I think, you know, we don't want to, um, you know, when we think about loss, you know, of course, um, I think appropriately, we think first of the emotional experience um, that we have. But for those of us who are investing a significant amount of, um, you know, finances in in our experience of reproduction as well, I don't feel like we can leave that out. Um, you know, when we when we talk about this and the kinds of impacts that this has on LGBTQ families, although you know, I would argue that also many heterosexual families that are you know engaged in assisted reproduction, um, you know, probably have some of these experiences as well. In Krista's interview, she particularly centers the experience of non-gestating parents, including those who have experienced adoptive loss. Of their experience of losing a child, oftentimes, um, you know, after they had come into their lives for a few days or uh, a week, or um, I believe some states it's up to 30 days um, that a child can be placed with you, but but can then be reclaimed. Um, and so, so I spoke to people with a variety of experiences of loss um, who were not only gestational or or biological parents. One couple she interviewed included a trans man who identifies as genderqueer and their partner. Nora had initially gotten pregnant and had experienced a loss and then had some health complications that meant that um, she was not going to be able to be pregnant again. And so they did, in this instance, um, decide that Alex would, would then carry the children. Um, and, 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 you know, that, that was complicated on a lot of levels. Um, you know, what, I mean, certainly 
in terms of um, you know their relationship and gender identity, but also in terms of, of legal relationship. Because the state they lived in would not grant legal relationship to the non-carrying parent, they could not both be on the birth certificate. So that switch you know, between the partners made for much more complicated legal and, and political arrangements and they, you know, did not have enough money to leave the state and try and do an adoption elsewhere. In other situations, the non-caring parents' experience of loss was just simply erased. You know, people would ask about their partner who had been carrying the child, who, who had physically experienced the loss, but would not ask about the experience of the other parent who was very much anticipating that child and had been involved in, um, you know, their conception and planning and um, and all the ways in which you're involved in, um, you know, in making a family. For us here, the blocks that come up in the script of how family gets made can bring grief, too. Queer people's bodies experiencing infertility bring compounded loss and are even less understood. Craven and Peel write in their essay that they spoke with a lesbian couple who, when the partner trying to conceive, could not. Their friends suggested that they simply swap. Naomi always thought that she would biologically carry and birth a child, but she's run into reproductive loss more than once. Naomi is a queer woman whose fertility is compromised. So I am a woman who, um, as I would say, has an issue of blood. So I have fibroids. They don't seem to want to go away and they compromise my fertility right and so when I realized this I had to deal with the grief I was surprised by um because whatever figment of my imagination existed around birth pregnancy motherhood was shattered by just the fact that this might not be this easy peasy process um so I'm I think that I'm still grieving the loss of the perfect reproductive situation. Um, Why is my body not cooperating with my dreams? Um, What does this mean for my status in the world as a woman, as a person who claims a female body? Um, How is that connected to my larger sense of identity in the world? Do I now feel like I can walk through the world as confidently as I did before. Um, so for me, reproductive loss hit me unexpectedly when I realized I wouldn't be able uh, to do it like I had imagined. The words grief and loss can talk about the potential that our bodies might once have had. A Kaddish listener, cat told us about how the loss of their period is a part of that loss. This past year, I was diagnosed with PCOS, um, and I'm 24 years old. Um, for me, this looks like um, having high testosterone levels, um, and my period is basically non-existent without the use of medication. Um, my ability to one day carry a child is complicated um, and may not actually happen. Um, when I expressed this concern um, to my physician, she literally said, there's always IVF, as if that was some sort of easy or cheap choice to make when the time came. Um, I know very little about what Judaism has to say about a loss of potential, um, but it feels very real nonetheless. We've learned that the issues that compound reproductive loss range from the cost of fertility treatments to the invisibility that a non-carrying queer partner can experience. 
we know that all bodies, including queer ones, can experience infertility, and the compounding of those experiences result in a unique place. I think that reproductive loss is a queer issue, full stop. Here's Naomi again. Because lots of, first of all, queer identified people experience the re- reframing and reorienting of their own expectations around kind of reproductivity um, as they come to know themselves as queer people. So I, in my queer body, am I going to be able to do the things I imagine I would do in a non-queer body? I want to be in a queer body. Um, But what does that mean? You know, if I'm a female-bodied person, I'm queer, um, does that change my um, own expectation of myself around whether or not I'll parent and how. Um, But also more sort of um, more poignantly for me, um, how do our parents, so the parents of queer children, reckon with their own sense of reproductive loss when their expectations around how they would become grandparents are not met? I remember my mother saying to me when I came out, I think I must have talked about becoming a mother at some point. And uh, she was like, oh. And I was like, are you surprised? And she was like, well, I just didn't think, I I didn't know that that was still on the table. And I was like, I'm not not interested in being a parent because I'm queer. But in her mind, she had already prepared for this loss um, that I won't become a grandmother Um, due to my daughter's having a baby because she's queer. Um, And so I think that a lot of queer families go through this loss and they don't know what to call it. They don't know to call it that. They don't know that there is support for that. Is that a thing? When there are straight identified female-bodied people who experience reproductive loss in this kind of more mainstream way. Um, So that's why I think that reproductive loss is a queer issue because Many of our families have to change their expectation around how we will give, bring life, um, and, and that is experienced as a loss, as a grief. There are so many ways that we build family. Uncles and aunties who are actually family friends, who become so related to you and your family it's hard to remember who is and isn't a biological relative. Teachers who become adoptive parents and show up for graduations and celebrations. Friends who raise children of the same age, who parent each other's children without missing a beat. It is natural and holy, the way that our webs of connection form and cement. When looking for proving texts for queer reproduction and queer reproductive loss, the Babylonian Talmud has what we need. In Nida 31a, it teaches, There are three partners in the creation of man, the Holy One of Blessing, his father, and his mother. His father brings forth white seed that produces bones, nerves, nails, the brain in his head, and the white in his eye. The woman brings forth red seed which produces skin, flesh, hair, and the dark of the eye. The Holy One of Blessing gives the spirit, the soul, the personality of the face, the sight of the eye, the hearing of the ear, the speech of the mouth, the locomotion of the legs, understanding, and wisdom. It takes so much more than just biological materials to create a being. It is the love of family and community, an unnameable force, kismet, luck, 
that all comes together. It is not just the parents that create the being, but according to Nidah 31a, it is a triune formula that includes God. We have in this text an ally. It allows many players, parents, sperm donor, surrogate, adoptive parents, biological parents, to all be a part of those partners in creation. And that text continues. When the time comes to part from this world, the Holy One of Blessing takes his portion and the part of the mother and the father are laid bare before them. When the time comes, each being is reduced to the physical self and the holy ingredients brought by God, by the source, invested in by community, that essence is what is collected. Some things last forever and it's much bigger than only biological materials. This acknowledges all of the factors of parenthood and makes room for all of the factors of queer parenthood. For Jackie Morton, she had to create holding our space to find room for her story of terminating her wanted pregnancy. Our faith communities all need to work better to hear stories ring out and stay true for all of the ways that reproductive loss can exist. And so women, you know, who experience, say, miscarriage, there is no space to, to like, let me, is there something, can we, can we do a burial? Can we have a, a memorial service? Can we do that? There's no, I've never heard of that happening in a Christian faith community. Mm-hmm. So again, giving people the space for ritual, for memorializing, honoring the dead, the loss, um, can be such a powerful thing for people. Um, to me, it's like an incomplete sentence. Like we're asking people to just hang on, you know, and they don't feel like they've done what they needed to do, like with their bodies to honor the, the lives that have been lost. I think particularly as we experience the blood um, of folks running through the streets right now, we need to be talking about death um, and loss um, and not just trying to run and, and claim some victory or make some meaning. Oh, this is the way it had to be. Uh, so, no, I don't think we do it. I don't think we do a good job at all. And I, I hope that not just in my professional role, but as I'm personally evolving as a person of faith, then I'm able to contribute that to the community. Ritual is one of the many ways that we stake out space, that we acknowledge loss. In Krista's interview, she spoke with one person who named ritual and ceremony as more important in LGBTQ communities, specifically because efforts to make families are so often devalued, and naming those efforts and loss is that much more important. Sometimes that was through, you know, a a religious or spiritual ceremony. Um, You know, sometimes that was through, um, you know, keepsakes that the person had, um, you know, in public and that you know, they would talk to people about when they were in their home. Um, you know, for some, it was memorial tattoos that, and, and it was interesting to me that most of the memorial tattoos that people um, shared with me were in a public space on their body. And they, they weren't necessarily um, 
like you, you may have seen memorial tattoos on someone where, you know, it has their face and it has their date of birth and date of death or, you know, and it's very clear what it is. And in the cases, um, you know, where I spoke with people, it wasn't necessarily clear what it was. So, so they had the option of speaking with someone about it if they wanted to and including them in that, you know, kind of community of grief or, or not. Um, and I thought that that was a, a particularly interesting, you know, access or um, aspect of memorialization. What would it look like if our religious communities could hold this loss and not require us to host our ceremony on the fringes? How can we structure our organizations and institutions to either partner or get good at providing support for people post-termination, like the day after, the month after, the year after? Do we have the capacity to follow up in that way? Um, how do faith communities come in um, and provide nurture and care? Uh, so I just find myself wanting to disrupt this claim. Our text reminds us, when the time comes to part from this world, the Holy One of Blessing takes his portion, and the part of the mother and father are laid bare before them. When the effort and care to adopt, to give birth, to conceive, or the ability to decide are laid bare, what's left. When God's portion is collected, we're left trying to figure out how to hold all of the potential of what could have been and what was. It is in these moments that grief, laid bare, deserves to be seen and held. Knowing that ways our bodies move through this existence are sites of joy and liberation and grief and what-ifs. Believing that we hold the multitude of ways to create and dream and fan out into this life. Praying that what has been lost will not be forgotten. As always, I am so grateful for our listeners and the brilliant Kaddish team. If you want to share a story with the Kaddish community, you can call 240-K-A-D-D-I-S-H. Two book recommendations from this episode. Queering Motherhood, out from Demeter Press, as well as And Hannah Wept, Infertility, Adoption, and the Jewish Couple by Michael Gold. We're fundraising! Kaddishpodcast.com or bit.ly slash podcast if you want to get there directly. We're offering some wonderful tinctures made by friend of the podcast, Jonah Daniel, from Plants as Allies. These tinctures were made to ease symptoms of grief and open the heart during times of pain. We've got a lot of other goodies, including some vinyl stickers with our awesome logo, designed by J.B. Brager, and a grief bencher zine full of poetry and prayers that you can take to a house of mourning, made by yours truly. It's kind of a bummer of a fundraiser, but any amount of a donation is so appreciated and it really helps the show going. Thank you so much to everyone who has already donated. Thank you so much to our guests, Naomi Leaphart and Krista Craven, and to Kat for calling in. Thank you to Carrie Preston, JJ Tan, Tiny Victor, Chelsea Noriega, and Sid Weissman. Thank you to the Jewish Federation of Greater Hartford for their continued generosity. And thank you to fearless Kaddish producer, Alex Stern. I'm Ariana Katz, and this is Kaddish.